Hello everyone, my name is Debbie and I'm Danielle and you're listening to Let's Get Psyched. Psyched! So this podcast takes a look into the field of psychology uh, where we'll be reviewing a multitude of topics. So each topic will consist of some history highlights but most importantly the recent research being conducted in the field today. So Debbie, why is this important? Well, first Getting the facts straight. I think now more than ever, a lot of people receive so much misinformation, so much just confusing information. We just want to be here to give you the facts, as well as stay on top of a sometimes very confusing and often convoluted field. We want to be able to provide a clear and digestible information within the psychology field itself. We want to break down all this research that's happening and provide it to you guys. For some yummy, yummy information. (laughs) So who are we? So I graduated with a bachelor's of science in psychology and I'm currently taking a gap year or two or maybe even three (laughs) working full-time in a neuropsychology lab as a clinical research coordinator. So in undergrad, I worked as a research assistant in two social psychology labs, uh, which is what I thought I wanted to get my PhD in, but now I'm looking into clinical psychology programs. So I'm mainly interested in women's health, uh, substance abuse, and anxiety research. I am in very similar uh, situation as Danielle. I also graduated with a bachelor's of science in psychology, and I am also currently taking a gap year or two. (laughs) And um, I'm also working full-time in two different labs as a clinical research coordinator. In my undergrad, I also worked as an RA in a adult aging lab. And I'm currently looking into programs such as community psychology programs or health psychology programs. My main interests are women's health and health disparities for uh, women and minorities. And that's just a little bit about who we both are. Um, We also want to preference that we both don't have PhDs, but we are both working towards our PhDs in psychology. Also, um, I know we told a little bit about ourselves, but we'll, throughout this entire podcast, you'll get to know us even, even more so than just those little bios. So now uh, we'll be getting into something that we're going to be doing um, for each episode. It is called our Think Drinks. Think, think drink, think, think drink. drink. Da, na, na, na. <laughs> so, um, yeah, each episode we'll be enjoying a new alcoholic refreshment while we explore these psychology topics. And this week we'll be drinking Fuzzy Logic. Fuzzy Logic? Yes. I love that name. <laughs> so, this drink is actually something William Wundt used to drink. William Wundt is known as the father of psychology and I think it's important to give him a little uh homage a little little you know little one two here you go um because we're gonna be talking a lot about the basics of psychology and he is a very very famous psychologist this one goes out to our dad the father of psychology (laughs) the father of psychology (laughs) Strong. <laughs> I like him strong. Yeah, I mean, it's good. Mm. 
you really taste that peach snap in there. Mm-hmm. I really like that 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 flavor. It's very uh, summery, very peachy. Yeah, I actually really like it. Um, I think the orange tames a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the vodka, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I'm not choking, so <laughs> not yet. <laughs> now on to the history highlights. Let's move on to our very first topic. Is psychology a science? Well, since this is both our first time recording... Or your second. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and your first time listening, uh, we wanted to give a baseline to what psychology is and isn't, and as well as talk about the reproducibility crisis. <laughs> and how this has affected the field. So many terms we discuss will be field specific, but we're gonna break them down and explain everything because that's the whole point. We just wanna give you some sweet, sweet knowledge. <laughs> Not to give away the answer to the topic of today, but yes, psychology is a science. Shocking. <laughs> but with everything in life, it's a little more complicated than a straight yes or no answer. We're going to dive into the reasons why universities and academics view psychology as a science, and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty of why the field is questioned. So, Debbie, what is psychology? Such a good question. (laughs) So let's first define what psychology is. According to the APA, which is the American Psychological Association, psychology is the study of the mind and behavior. The discipline embraces all aspects of the human experience, from the functions of the brain to the actions of nations, from child development to care for the elderly. In every conceivable setting from scientific research centers to mental health care services, the understanding of behavior is the enterprise of psychologists. Wow, that definition was (laughs) beautiful. That sounded like a speech. Sounded like a company wrote it. (laughs) From the president of APA. So first we're going to be looking at why psychology is questioned in the first place. And one of the reasons why is due to the origins of psychology in itself. Psychology stems from the philosophical discipline. Two main, or I would say two biggest philosophers that have attributed to psychology Um, and the famous nature-nurture debate are the Greek philosophers Plato and Aristotle. So Aristotle was more on the nature side, which... Oh no, it's Plato. No, you're right, you fucking right. (laughs) (laughs) So Plato was more on the nature side, which pretty much says that the entirety of the human experience or anything a human is, is specifically shaped by the environment that they are in. While Aristotle was more on the nurture side, believing that each child is born as an empty slate. And uh, knowledge is primarily obtained through learning and experience. So one article that I'm going to be referring to is titled Keep Psychology Out of the Science Club by Alex B. Barrazzo. Why are you laughing outside of the club? You can't even get in. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha. Lego. So this man is very angry, or at least just upset that psychology is considered a science. 
So his viewpoint, I just want to point out that this is the junk science debunker. <laughs> so this man is a science writer. I'm not going to say he's a scientist or does science, but pretty much his article boils down to a couple reasons why psychology isn't a science. And he specifically gives five requirements why psychology is not considered a science. So uh, this uh, junk science debunker <laughs> listed five requirements, basic requirements, why psychology isn't a science. So it should be clearly defined terminology, quantifiability, highly controlled experimental conditions, reproducibility, and predictability and testability. So I kind of just want to do a couple counter arguments for these because as a psychologist in training, um, all of this is bull. <laughs> uh, psychology has all of these requirements. And to, to begin with, clearly define terminology. So we use um, operational definitions in psychology. If you're not familiar uh, with that term, it's basically where we get clearly define definitions and measures that we use in our studies. So for example, um, anger, how would you operationally define anger? Would you mm -hmm. define it as someone getting so angry that they're punching holes in the wall? Mm -hmm. Or would you consider it more as uh, passive aggressive anger? You know, like mm -hmm. you have to clearly state what it is that you're studying and looking for. Exactly. And quantifiability really leads back to this point of clearly defined terminology is that in any study, you need to be able to measure it. What's the point of studying something if you can't get data from it? And that's what quantifiability is about. We want to be able to operationalize, aka quantify everything, every aspect of a study. Uh, his third point, again, is the highly controlled experimental conditions. And especially working in clinical trials, any psychologist can attest to how much how much effort it takes to create a study design that not only gets funded, but is reliable and is just controlled bottom to top. There's no reason in putting so much money and effort into yeah. something that is not accounted for like that. Yeah. Yeah, everything is is documented. Everything is is watched. So there's nobody's going to throw money at something if it's not going to show show results, yeah. accurate results. Exactly. So the fourth uh, point that he mentioned was reproducibility. So it's a little foreshadowing here, but let's just say that we'll be diving into this specific issue later on. Um, long story short, that every field has this issue, not just psychology. Yes. And predictability and testability, uh, it goes back to the fourth point. And again, we'll be talking about more in depth about this, but it, psychology has both of these. And, and again, we'll be getting into, into why in a, little while, in a little bit. So Debbie, can you explain to us why is psychology a science? Yes. So psychology 
is a science because it follows the procedures that every other science does, aka the scientific method or the empirical method, however you want to frame it. In essence, psychology follows this basic format. If you don't remember from any basic science course that you might have taken, the scientific method follows these procedures. Somebody predicts or makes a hypothesis. You then observe or measure your hypothesis. And this goes into it, the explanation or the general theory of what the hypothesis is. Of course, you know, it's, it's never that simple, but that is the basic method of what a, a science is. We also are trained in, in measurement and data gathering and research de design, advanced statistical techniques. You have to conduct systematic research and you are, if you're lucky, you are published in peer-reviewed journals. Uh, there is a step and method to every aspect of science. You're always put on this kind of spotlight um, because the way that you can do these studies and test out your hypotheses is because you're funded by big institutes mm -hmm. such as the National Institute on Aging, um, the National Institute on... There's a National Institute on for everything. Everything. Yeah. Drugs, you name it. Yeah. Um, it, it, it just goes to show that if there's a study being done, there's a funding source behind it. And again, psychology focuses on empirical evidence, not objectivity. You know, we're not just going out there saying the sky is purple and pushing stuff out to, to make others believe the sky is purple. The sky is blue. Uh, just for people who may not know that. Haven't gone outside in a while. <laughs> it has been a while, Jenny. It has, it has it's been, been months. <laughs> yes. Months. And again, you know, there's control, there's hypothesis, there's testing, replication, predictability, all that good jazz wrapped up in psychology, regardless of what some people may say, the field is very rigorous and we, we pride ourselves on being scientists, not, not theorists, you know, not, philosoph not philosophers, we're, we're scientists. Please let us in the club. <laughs> let us in the it's, club. It's hot out here. <laughs> so, as you can see, there's some debate and will most likely always be a talking point for psychology. However, at the core of it, people dedicate their lives to this research of psychology with the hopes of advancing our knowledge of the human psyche. It's important to understand the faults, but even more so come together to remedy some of these aspects to bring about a more cohesive field. So a great example of the field taking accountability of a fault is the reproducibility crisis. Um, just to preface, this is something happening in every field of science, not just psychology. I know that calling it a crisis does sound a bit dramatic, but... Um, it wouldn't sell if it wasn't dramatic. Exactly. <laughs> we love the drama. We love a little drama. <laughs> So Nature, uh, which is a journal that aims to support scientific work and advanced discovery, 
surveyed a little bit over 1,500 researchers of different backgrounds. So these researchers included 703 biologists, 106 chemists, 95 uh, earth and environmental scientists, 203 medical researchers, 236 physicists and engineers, and uh, 233 other, which is what psychology falls into. That we're other. (laughs) Yep, we don't even have our own... (laughs) Label. (laughs) Yep. So um, they were all asked if there is a reproducibility crisis within their field. Well, guess what? (laughs) 90% of the surveyors said that yes, there is. Just to break it down a little bit more, 52% said that there is a significant crisis, which is very dramatic if you ask me, mm-hmm. and 38% said that, yeah, there's a slight crisis. I, I love how one was like, oh my god, yes, there's a crisis, and then 38% was like, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I guess there's a little slight, there's a, there's a little crisis. What's happening now? Let's talk about the reproducibility crisis. So it's it's also called a replication crisis, um, but no matter what you call it, it's an ongoing issue in the scientific community, not just psychology, where it has been found that many scientific studies are difficult or impossible to replicate or reproduce. So experiments should be repeated over and over, not over over and over and over and over and over and over and over you get the point yeah (laughs) um to see if the results from the first trial are valid so the reproducibility crisis in psychology specifically is that many of the experiments that are published are not valid because it fails the reproducibility test which is to see if the same or another group of researchers can yield the same results after repeating the same measures and conditions of the first trial. So direct replication provides this opportunity to assess and improve reproducibility. In the psychological field, this discussion focuses on p-values, which we'll get into in a second, and the term statistical significance. So now we're going to break down what the p-value even is, how it's used in psychology research, and what conversations are being had to remedy this statistical blunder. So what is a p-value? Well, I found a great article titled P-Values Explained by a Data Scientist, authored by Admin Lee. So this article is super informative and very digestible. I'm going to be using it, uh, using some of the definitions and examples that this author has come up with to explain what a p-value is and the idea behind it. I'm going to be referring to four main ideas that make up the entire picture of what a p-value is and the specific type of testing. This info is pretty easy to grasp. If you've taken any basic statistic course, it's honestly just going to be a refresher. But if you've never taken a statistic course, again, it's very simple. So the four main definitions or ideas that we're going to be discussing are hypothesis testing, normal distribution, what a p-value is, and statistical significance. So hypothesis testing is used to test the validity of a claim. A claim is a null hypothesis that is made about a population using sample data. The alternative hypothesis to your null is the one you would believe if your null hypothesis is concluded to be like not true. To know if a claim is valid or not, we'll use a p-value to weigh the strength of the evidence 
to see if it's statistically significant. If the evidence supports the alternative hypothesis, then we're just gonna straight out reject that null hypothesis and accept the alternative one. Can you, can you give an example of this, Debbie? Yes, I can. Suppose a pizza place claims their delivery times are 30 minutes or less on average, but you think it's more than that. So you're going to be conducting a hypothesis test and you're going to randomly sample some delivery times to test the claim. Not delivery places, one delivery place, different delivery times. Your null hypothesis is the average delivery time is 30 minutes or less. You want to believe this pizza place delivers 30 minutes or less. So Debbie, are you talking about like a specific location or a specific um, company like Domino's or Five Star? Yeah, I would say you're looking at a specific pizza location and looking at those delivery times. Okay. I think there would be just be way more testing if you're trying to do multiple locations. Right. That would be more of like a meta-analysis. Hey. Which is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about. So as stated, the null hypothesis, you want to believe this, this place delivers 30 minutes or less. But in the back of your mind, you're like, man, I just don't trust this pizza place. They probably are going to take more than 30 minutes to deliver. That little thought in the back of your head is going to be your alternative hypothesis. So you're telling me that the alternative alternative hypothesis is just the alternative to your hypothesis. You know, you make a really good point and that's exactly, that's exactly what I'm getting at. So the p-value, the most popular cutoff method in statistics. When we're thinking of the number for p-value, it is always going to be less than 0.05. The higher the p-value is, the less statistically significant that your null hypothesis is. Or better yet, what the higher chance for your alternative hypothesis to be true. So bringing it back to the pizza, if the p-value is high, for your, your, your mean, that means that you, that little voice in the back of your head was right, that this pizza place delivers longer or the mean time for their delivery is more than 30 minutes. However, if the p-value is less than 0.05, that means that it is a statistically significant number and your null hypothesis is more likely to be true which means that they were not lying to you and you will receive your pizza in 30 minutes or less. Guaranteed. Or your money back. <laughs> so Debbie, can you just define what p-value is? Yes. So a p-value stands for probability. It is the probability that something is or isn't happening within your hypothesis. That is what a p-value is. And I didn't want to forget about normal distribution. So normal distribution is the probability density used to see data distribution. If you think about it or if you've ever seen it, it is the bell curve. You think about something starting off super low and then there's this peak in the middle and then it's tailed at the end. So two tails, it peaks in the middle that is what a normal distribution, aka a bell curve, looks like. 
So an example of normal distribution, uh, something that would follow that type of bell curve would be heights. You know, the average person is between, I would say, five foot mm-hmm. and, I don't know, maybe six foot, but I mean, it depends. have you seen basketball players? I mean, yeah, you're right, but that is, is an it? outlier. Yeah, They would be at the other end tail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But us, we're like... Five two, that we would be considered. I'm five four. Okay, I'm average. <laughs> I fit right in that bell curve. Congrats. <laughs> I'm different. <laughs> so I can already hear everyone saying by now. Thanks, Debbie. Uh, the p value doesn't sound so bad. Sounds like a cool dude. I would hang out with like on the weekend. We'd be chilling. It'd be great. But guess what? The p-value has some dark secrets, and I'm here to explain what they are. Well, doesn't everyone, to be fair? Everybody has some skeletons in their closet. We're on the first episode. Let's wait a little. (laughs) So I'm going to be referencing this article titled, Rain in the Four Horsemen of E-Reproducibility. Wow, that sounds very dramatic. Yeah, and it didn't take me several takes to say that word (laughs) absolutely not no one and done the four horsemen of reproducibility includes the publication bias low statistical power p-value hacking and harking which is hypothesizing after results are known so let's start with talking about uh publication bias what is that Publication bias is when researchers are less likely to write up studies that show no uh, significant effect. So if their studies prove that there is no significance, they are more likely not to publish it. This means that journal editors are less likely to accept the ones that are not significant. Consequently, no one can learn from them, and researchers waste time and resources on repeating experiments redundantly. Next is low statistical power. This means that if a study has a small sample size, um, the effect of the whatever experiment manipulation that you have is going to be small. So the odds are you're not going to see an effect because the sample size is so small. And even if there is one, it's, it's so minute, it's not aka statistically significant. It's very wasteful to conduct studies this way because you're, you really should never be doing a study with such a, a small sample size to begin with. The field has kind of changed to where um, a lot of institutes won't fund studies with, with low power. Uh, you have to prove that your study is going to uh, have some type of effect on every type of person, mm-hmm. not just one specific demographic, mm-hmm. one specific race, yeah. sex, gender, ethnicity. Yeah. You want to show that your population includes as many different people of different backgrounds as you can. Absolutely. So that, so that you can show that this effect is is broad. Uh, after that is p-value hacking. This one kind of it's it sucks uh because i 
as a scientist, you want to take pride in your work and, and what you and what studies you conduct. And the main issue of p-hacking is that you conduct this study and you get all this data and you just run analysis after analysis after analysis until you get something statistically significant. This dilutes, it uh, distorts the data pretty much to not, not what the hypothesis was, but what just pretty data, pretty much. It just looks nice. Yep, and the last one is harking, which stands for hypothesizing after results are known. So this term was coined in 1998. It's so widespread in the research that researchers assume it's a good practice. So they look at the data, they pluck out a finding that looks exciting to them, looks very interesting, and write a paper to tell the story around the results. So it's basically going back through the whole scientific method at the very beginning mm -hmm. and making a completely different hypothesis mm -hmm. than what you were actually studying. Yes, which is a big no-no in science. The whole point of hypothesizing, you have to quest question something to find an answer. You don't do it the other way around. Exactly. So how do we start to fix this misuse of the p-value? Well, the APA gives great guidelines on how to do so, but I'm going to specifically focus on the reproducibility crisis. So there's this thing called the Reproducibility Project, um, which was a group of 270 researchers. They worked on a meta-analysis of 100 studies, um, which were both experimental and correlational studies that were published in three different psychology journals to determine their reproducibility. Since there's no single standard for evaluating replication success, uh, this team of researchers used significance and p-values, effect sizes, subjective assessments of replication teams, and a meta-analysis of effect sizes. So what is the methodology of this meta-analysis? You know, I'm really glad you asked, Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> Each researcher selected a study and they followed a replication protocol. The replication protocol included the process of selecting the study and key effect from the available articles, contacting the original authors for study materials, preparing a study protocol and analysis plan, obtaining a review of the protocol by the original authors and other members within the present project, registering the protocol publicly, conducting the replication, writing the final report, and finally auditing the process and analysis for quality control. As you can see, there's a lot that goes into this process to replicate. Um, you want to, they really wanted to control for as much as they could mm -hmm. by getting the original measures. Yeah, I was just gonna say that is so much work to, I mean, just to do one study alone, the manual of operations, the protocol is so detailed. So to do that with multiple studies is intense. Yep. They really wanted to control for, you know... As much as possible, yeah. Exactly. Now let's discuss the results of yeah. this meta-analysis. To start off, 97% of original studies had significant results. So these were the studies that were published in these journals. 
97% of them showed statistical significance. Which means the p-value is less than 0.05. Right. But only 36% of replications had significant results, meaning that almost two-thirds of the original studies published in these peer-reviewed journals did not show significant results after replicating them. You know, correlational tests suggest that replication success was better predicted by the strength of the original evidence than by the characteristics of the original replication teams, meaning that the more that these researchers give in their studies and Mm -hmm. operationally defining each variable, putting footnotes where possible, just really explaining all of the details and measures taken place in these studies Mm -hmm. shows that you know that really determines whether or not the original study can be replicated by other people so pretty much it 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 means that more work needs to be going in pre-study to to define these things to go step by step in the study process so other researchers can then refer to that to replicate the study because if you give a kind of a general idea of what your study is and put that out into the world other people are, aren't you they're not going to know exactly step by step the process that you took exactly which means that it has a very low chance of being able to, to replicate, replicate the exact same results gotcha so they're saying that you know these scientific claims should not be deemed as as truth just because of the status or authority of the researcher. Mm-hmm. So someone who's, you know, really big in their field and you know, you can't just believe anything that anyone says. And it's one individual. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um just because, you know, they're high within their field. Mm-hmm. You need to determine it by the replicability of their supporting evidence. That's what this um, meta-analysis was trying to aim at. So what would the world look like beyond the p-value? Well, an article published last year titled Moving to a World Beyond P is Less Than 0.05 is a article of an, it's an accumulation of papers that 43 individuals or, you know, statisticians wrote as an editorial piece to discuss significance testing. To begin with, they started with a list of don't. These are the things that statisticians or, you know, psychologists, anybody that does statistic work should not be doing with p-values. The first one is don't base your conclusion solely on wherever an association or effect was found to be statistically significant. Also, don't believe that an association or effect exists just because it was statistically significant. Don't believe that an association or effect is absent just because it was not statistically significant. Don't believe that your p-value gives the probability that chance alone produced the observed association or effect or the probability that your test hypothesis is true. And finally, don't conclude anything about scientific or practical importance based on statistical significance or lack thereof. Pretty much they're saying don't just look at the p-value and say oh 
my study was right. My hypothesis was right. In any data analysis, there has to be something more than that. Just because something is or isn't statistically significant doesn't mean that there there could be other analyses done that show more important findings. So now we're going to look at what the statisticians, the four main ideas that they want every researcher to embody when they're doing analyses. This acronym, ADAM, stands for accept uncertainty, be thoughtful, open, and modest, which is something that you can apply to every part of your life, I think. Yes, absolutely. So accepting uncertainty. Uncertainty exists everywhere, not just in research, in life. I feel like this year has proven that very well. <laughs> it, it's pretty much just saying that, you know, your findings may not be exactly what you want them to be, but we're observing the natural world. Nothing is going to be exactly the way that we deem it to be. We have to just go with the flow and whatever our findings may be, they will be. The next one is to be thoughtful. Uh, this article mentions that statistically thoughtful researchers begin above all else with clearly expressed objectives. So before you start a study, you need to sit down and think about what it is mm -hmm. that you want to study. Yeah, I think we kind of, I think we've driven that point home in this episode that before you just go out there and experiment, you need to know exactly what you're experimenting with, how, why, when. You need to know all of this. You need to be aware and thoughtful. And you, to, you need to consider not just one direct way of analyzing your data, but a multitude of techniques. Openness or being open. This is not only embracing you know, our downfalls that happen within our field, but open and embracing different uh, and, and positive development within research itself. And holding our downfalls and our mistakes accountable. Accountability. Whew. I feel like such a... I, I respect individuals more or a field more when there is accountability not only when something goes right, but when something goes wrong. Right. So, you know, let's say that researchers in the past, they partake in those types of... Harking. Um, harking and... Publication bias. You know, the fact that you can come out and admit your wrongdoings and then just improve from there is just a step in the positive, in the right direction. Absolutely. In, in research, especially when things are constantly being updated, new findings are constantly being put out, you need to be open to change, not only in the way that you conduct research, but in the way that you analyze your findings. And last but not least, sit down and be humble, aka be modest. 
by understanding and clearly expressing the limitations of your work. You're never going to be able to answer every question in the universe with one study. That's just not possible. That's why we have a field. That is why we have so many researchers and scientists because there's never just one answer. There's there's multiple questions. There's a multitude of answers and, and even more questions from your findings. Um, it, it's being able to say, maybe I didn't find exactly what I wanted, but this was a good step in the right direction. That is modesty in its finest. So yeah, being modest really is like a reality check. I think that some, you know, people within the field might need that little check, um, especially because we want to be able to prove to other people that mm -hmm. psychology is a science, you know, it is mm -hmm. replicable. We are taking the appropriate measures mm -hmm. in order to make our findings valid. Yeah, that makes sense. It It's definitely walking that line of contributing to the field while knowing that your findings aren't going to solve everything that the field is questioning. Right. So my sister's actually a um, researcher. She got her PhD in criminology. Dope. She always tells me that the thing in academia is publish or perish. Mm -hmm. So you're constantly upheld. To like a standard? A standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're constantly being upheld to the standard of you need to publish, 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 mm -hmm. no matter what, or your your career in academia mm -hmm. is going to fail, which is not something that uh, researchers should be experiencing because it's important to make sure that everything that you do publish is consistent. It is just strong mm -hmm. evidence and strong data. Yeah. And I think that falls back more on the university than it does on the researcher itself. The researcher, I want to believe that every researcher wants to put out quality work, not quantity work. Mm -hmm. um, and it really is the pressure of the university because the more that is published, the more money that comes in. It's all about the money. Capitalism, baby. <laughs> Welcome to America. <laughs> Well, thank you all for joining us on our first episode of Let's Get Sight. Just to wrap up what we've learned today, we've learned the origins of psychology, we've learned what even a p-value is, what the reproducibility crisis is, what we can do to make it better as researchers, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, I'm super excited and and happy that you have made it this far in your listening experience yes thank you guys so much um please feel free to follow us on social media mm -hmm. our twitter is at let's underscore get psyched and our facebook we've made a facebook group it's it's also at let's get psyched and our instagram it has not been made yet but stay tuned for more info on that Thank you guys again for listening to us. Spew. Yes. Spew. And I hope you guys 
we're able to absorb this information and take it with you not only if you're interested in research or science but in life because nothing is black and white we need to be open to new ideas and to discovery there's always going to be a gray area that we have to look at and that's what science is for so thank you guys for listening to let's get psyched psyched